Thank you very much. What's that piece called? <laughs> to God be the glory. I don't listen to a ton of music, so that was, I liked it. Good morning. Good morning. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 46. Appreciate Mike and Joy doing the music for us this morning. And those are just great, great songs. Uh, Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamov, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious God, we pray for our nation as we come to the precipice of another presidential election. Lord, you are the king. You are the creator of all things. Lord God, let us not fall into the ways of the world and making idols of men, but let us come and worship you and you alone. Let us hope in you and you alone. Let us rejoice in you and you alone. Lord, regardless of what happens, you are the king and you are sovereign. Let us take a moment and rejoice in that fact. That we have the king of kings, the Lord of all the nations, the God of all of history, and that he is working all things for good. He knows us. He invites us to know him. We have a personal God. So let us not let our hearts be troubled, but may we look to you. Lord, also on this day, this international day of prayer for the persecuted church, we pray for those who are persecuted for the cause of Christ. Just this week, there were attacks on churches in France, persecution on the rise in many parts of the world. Lord, we pray for those who worship you at a great cost to themselves, their families, their livelihoods, and their lives. Lord, may you be near to them. Lord, may those people never be far from our hearts and minds. Lord, in spite of man's attempts to thwart your gospel, we pray for the work of pastors and evangelists and church members in these hostile places, that your word go forth. May the truth be preached. May the message of Christ crucified be proclaimed and believed. Lord, we pray that you bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
503 years ago yesterday, on October 31st, 1517, the history of the Church of Europe and of the Western world were forever changed in the town of Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, a list of grievances against corrupt and unbiblical practices within the Catholic Church. And the impact of that event continues to ripple throughout the Christian world to this day. At the time, this set off a powder keg. At times, Luther had to go into hiding. At times, his martyrdom seemed almost inevitable. But for just a moment, I want to talk about another time in Luther's life. The late 1520s were a tumultuous time. Has happened many times throughout Europe in the centuries before modern medicine. A plague was wreaking havoc in Germany. Luther's eldest child, Johannes, had nearly died. His firstborn daughter, Elizabeth, would die in 1528 at just seven months old. A close associate of Luther's, a man named Leo Kaiser, was martyred. And it's believed that it's in the midst of all of that that Martin Luther wrote the hymn that we sang just a few moments ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A song so powerful that it is sometimes referred to as the battle hymn of the Reformation. It's a powerful song. You can feel it in your chest. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Luther's words in that hymn are based on today's passage, Psalm 46, a beloved psalm which calls us to look to God in trying times. And so this morning we're taking a brief break from the Gospel of John to look at Psalm 46. And I had planned to preach this psalm on this day for quite some time. We have the election this week, and I think this psalm paints a great picture of a tumultuous situation and the necessity for reliance on God regardless of circumstances. So we'll look at this psalm in three scenes. I've given a title to each section of the passage. So the first scene I called Fearless. And what the beginning of this psalm is doing is it's reminding us to trust in God regardless of what we face. If you read along with me, verse one is a verse that I think should bring comfort to us in all situations. I forgot to plug this in. Carrie, can you help me real quick? Verse one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then beginning in verse two, the situation takes a turn and becomes more dire. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. So what the psalm says is that we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Sometimes, life can feel like that. The situations we face, that our families face. 2020 has definitely been a, a year with a lot of earth gives way kind of events. Or at least it can feel that way. And in those times, it's important to ask where our refuge is. Is it in God? Or is it in ourselves or our circumstances or our ability to control a situation? Also pay attention to the language of these verses. 
Just a couple weeks ago, we talked of how Jesus was the one who brought living water. Water has a somewhat complicated meaning and symbolism in the Bible. When Jesus talked of living water, obviously water is a source of life. I think that makes sense to us. Water is essential to life. We would die without it. But what might not make quite as much sense to us is that water in the Bible can also be a symbol of chaos in the Bible and in the ancient world. And part of why that might not make quite as much sense to us is that, for starters, we don't live near water. Ancient cities often were near water. If you look at the maps in the Bible of Paul's missionary journeys, he's always hugging the coastline. That's where the cities were. Even today, most major cities in America and throughout the world are on water, either on an ocean or a massive lake or rivers going through the cities. But with massive bodies of water, while it's necessary for survival, there can also be meteorological chaos and threats that arise from the water. Water can be a symbol of fear and destruction. And in the Psalms, and in this Psalm in particular, it is definitely the destructive and sinister aspect of water which is in mind. So you have water, a symbol of chaos and formidability. You have mountains, which are symbols of strength and permanence and stability. But what the beginning of the psalm is doing is turning the imagery on its head and depicting a terrible situation of the waters overcoming the mountains. The earth gives way. The mountains moved into the heart of the sea. Waters roaring, mountains trembling. What this psalm is describing is such chaos that the foundations of creation itself are being threatened. Yet, in spite of all of that chaos, what the psalmist is saying is that we will not fear. We've mentioned this before, but the most commonly given command in the Bible is fear not. And when the Bible talks of not being fearful, it never says that in isolation. It never says fear not. It just jumps to the next subject. But it always says fear not and grounds that in the truth of who God is. We see that in Exodus, where Moses is addressing the Israelites, quoting Exodus 14, 13. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. God tells Abraham, Genesis 15, 1, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Genesis 26, 24, God is speaking to Isaac. I am the God of, it, your, of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Lots of other examples. And so in this psalm, in spite of all of the chaos, in spite of all that's going on, we will not fear. Because God is our refuge and strength. Is God your refuge? 
A refuge is a place of security, a place where you're safe and protected. Is God that for you? For many of us, the temptation in the face of difficulty is to want to do what we can to control the situation. In another psalm, Psalm 91, it ends from God's perspective, confirming that he himself is our refuge. Psalm 91, verses 14 to 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We have a good God. We have a God who loves us, who knows our struggles and situations. And we have a God who is with us. Do you know that? It's difficult to look at God as our refuge if you don't believe that. I did a lot of thinking on the subject of faith this week as I considered these opening verses. And one thing that's clear in the Bible, and that I feel like we especially see in the Gospels, is that not everyone has the same level of faith. Don't misunderstand. If your faith is in Christ, it is that and that alone which justifies you before God. We are not, but what I'm saying is that we are not saved by the intensity of our faith, but by the object of our faith. But in life, in the situations we face, in the trials we face, we do not all face all of those situations with the same level of faith at all times. In the Gospels, Jesus makes references to people having little faith. We especially see this in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the subject of worry. He says, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Another example, Matthew 14, the disciples have been caught in this tremendous storm on the Sea of Galilee. And it is Jesus in the storm who comes out to them. We preached on that in John 6. But part of the story that Matthew tells that John does not is that Peter also walks on the water with Jesus. But then Peter realizes what's going on and that he's walking on water. And in that moment, he falls into the water. We see Jesus' response. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In Luke 17, the apostles realize that they don't have tons of faith. And so they say to Jesus in chapter 17, verse 6, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. But how do we do that? Part of the question we've already answered. We must recognize that our faith is not about us 
or how strong our faith is. It's about recognizing how mighty and how good our God is. He is a mighty fortress. He is a very present help in times of trouble. And it is the power of God that matters. That's how Jesus responds, by the way, in Luke 17, when the disciples ask about increasing their faith. And he gives the parable of the mustard seed. And the point of that parable is ultimately that the tremendous things that happen as a result of faith are not because of the person. They're because of God. We must be rooted in who God is. I read a story in preaching today. And Russia's Ural Mountains is the city of Berezhniki. That's how I pronounce it, at least. A town of 150,000 residents. Berezhniki was built on top of a potash mine. And after decades of mining this potash, a substance, if you don't know, commonly used in fertilizers, open pockets were created in this old mine underneath the city. In certain areas... The only thing supporting the ground that people walked on were these pillars made from salt. In 2006, fresh water springs flowed 700 to 1,500 feet underneath the city. And in some places, the water dissolved the salt. And the parts of the city, built on top of an old mine, large sinkholes were created. The largest of which, nicknamed the Grandfather, is 1,300 feet across and 650 feet deep, just in the middle of this city. The sinkholes have opened up in other parts of the city. In the last 30 years, about 50,000 people have moved away. The moral of the story is that we must have a firm foundation to feel secure. There are sinkholes of life. Again, 2020 has felt like one great big chasm. But what should define Christians is not the adversity we face, but the God in whom we believe. Second scene, God's presence. Verse 4, the scene shifts. The psalm opens with a call to trust God in spite of of incredible tumult and adversity. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Notice that the psalmist is again talking about water. But with God's presence... The water is no longer chaotic. Instead of the water overcoming the mountains, here the rivers and streams make glad the city of God. The city of God being referred to here is Jerusalem. So verse 4 talks of a river running through the city. It's symbolic. Ironically, Jerusalem does not have any rivers. Verse 5 talks of God being in the midst of of the city. God helping until morning dawns. And the psalm is describing the presence of God with his people. And certainly the point of this is pointing forward to Christ. Jesus is the one who would come into the world in his creation. 
And the passage continues. We again see this teeter-tottering between the difficulties the world faces. But God's deliverance in spite of what we face. Verses 6 and 7. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. I should give a note briefly on that word, Selah. It's used, I think, 76 times in the Old Testament, 73 of which are in the book of Psalms. Um, There's actually debate about what exactly the word means. It could have been a musical direction. The Psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament. Um, If it's referring specifically to a Hebrew word, that's not exactly known for sure. Um, I know a lot of people take that term oftentimes to sort of pause at the end of a paragraph when it's used and, and to reflect on what is being said in the psalm. But it is an original word that's in the psalm, which is why uh, I think it should always be said when, when reading it. Back to the passage. Psalm 46 is describing a dire situation, but reminding us of who God is in spite of that. I talked a moment ago about the most commonly given command in the Bible, not to fear. I want to again remind us of the most commonly given promise in the Bible, that God will be with his people. That is God's promise when we are going through difficulties. God is with us in our suffering. He is with us in our pain. He is with us when no one else is. He is with us when we sin. Not that he himself is sinful, But he is the God who will never leave us nor forsake us. He is a good God. He is with us and he allows us to be with him in heaven. He allows us to be with him for eternity. Because he is good. Because Jesus came to be with us. Because Jesus came into a sinful world. Because Jesus took the penalty of our sins upon himself. God's greatest gift is himself. And we come to our third scene. Stillness. Verses 8 and 9 remind us again of the power of God. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. With the words, come and behold, the psalm invites us to look to the power of God. That he is with us in our battles. Throughout the psalm, really there's been a lot of military language. We won't get into all of the examples. But certainly we see it in verse 9, where it talks of God making wars to cease. Just as the picture of God being a refuge is a biblical image which is meant to bring comfort, so also is the idea found in this psalm of God as a warrior. We see the imagery certainly more often in the Old Testament than the New Testament, so it can somewhat fly under the radar. There are lots of examples in the Bible that Use similar language. Just to give a couple examples. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. 
Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Or again, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4. God promises the Israelites, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And once again, the ultimate example is Jesus. Because it is Jesus who fought the forces of evil. It is Jesus who went ahead of us and defeated sin. He is the courageous one who laid down his life for the world. And the good news is that Jesus has already won the battle. He has already defeated sin. And we're called to come to him and to worship him and to believe in him. We come to the end of the psalm, verses 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. Verse 10 is right up there, probably my top four or five favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's so important to remember. Be still and know that I am God. Stillness can so often elude us. We live in a day and age where it's so easy to never have to be in the quiet. We have TVs, radios, smartphones. It's always an option to listen to some sort of chatter in the background. Some of us, I'm sure, go to bed with the TV turned on. We have the option of never being in the quiet. Some of us, I know, hate silence, hate stillness, have to always be talking or hearing something. And really, I think that is, to a certain degree, somewhat of a modern phenomenon. Obviously, most of human history did not have TVs or radios or certainly smartphones. Much of history, similes were, cities were small, lives were more rural. But we have that option today, to never be in silence. But sometimes the thing that we need to do above all else is just to be still. When I was in college, I was taking a philosophy class on meditation. It was not my favorite class. But we had to go to a meditation retreat. It was at a convent in northwest Ohio. And there are different rules for it. Um, most of the people in the class were kind of hippies. I am, that's not my personality. It just was all the things I don't really like. All the, all the meals were vegan. Um, I said this to Bruce before. I can't go to bed unless some animal died to preserve me that day. Um, I brought a thing of Pop-Tarts with me. That's what I, I... But they wanted us to not talk during the retreat. And uh, it's brutal. We don't like stillness. I'm not saying I'm any better, by the way. It's hard to appreciate stillness and quiet with all the noise and chatter in our world today. But God calls us in the face of adversity and struggle and chaos at times to just be still and to reflect and to know who he is. The verse says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And it's from the Lord's perspective 
that these verses are saying this. This be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The psalm ends by telling us to remember that God will be exalted among the nations and throughout the world. God will be honored. As the Bible says, one day every knee will bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God will be honored. And in the final verse, we're again reminded of God's great biblical promise that he will be with us. He will be with his people. He is our fortress. I selected this passage today for a specific reason. As we've discussed, Psalm 46 talks of God's provision and protection in spite of uncertainty and difficult circumstances. We have a presidential election this week. And after weeks and months and years of preparing for this election, a temptation that we face is to make idols of politics and politicians and to act like this Tuesday is the end-all, be-all. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm saying that it's not all important. But when the dust settles and the winner is known, if that's on Tuesday or Wednesday or after a few days or weeks or months, whoever wins is not our Savior. We have one Savior, and he died on the cross. When we know who the winner is, half of the country will rejoice. It'll be a time of excitement. There will be inflated expectations for all the things the president will accomplish. For half the country, they'll breathe a sigh of relief. It'll all be okay. Life can continue. The totalitarian purge will have been forestalled. But for the other half of the country... Wailing and mourning. It'll be over. America will be over. They'll think that society itself will crumble. Freedom will fade away. Human rights will be gone. We will all probably die. It's amazing that both parties say the same things will happen about the other party winning. My point isn't who to vote for. And really this point, I think, could be pulled and used four years from now and four years from then. Politicians are not our saviors. But we see the ads. There's cable news with wall-to-wall coverage. For some of us, more than others, we devote time to following the news. And it it can become sort of this air that we're breathing. And it can seem like politics are the most important thing in life. And I think what can happen is we sort of train ourselves to worship our political leaders. Again, I'm not saying that this stuff is unimportant. I'm saying that it's not all important. Now, on the one hand, I can see why the secular world falls into this trap. Because if you don't have a heavenly hope, it's natural that you'll put all of your worldly hope into what people can do. But too many Christians fall into this too. The idolatry of politics. Where is your hope? 
Writing in February for the Gospel Coalition, Joe Carter gave a list of 21 questions to consider when asking yourself if you've made politics an idol. And again, certainly it's a bigger issue for some of us than others. Some of you don't care at all. But even if you yourself are not really a politics buff, you're interacting with the world and with people who are. So we're not going to go over all 21 questions, obviously, but here's a couple questions that I thought were particularly striking from Joe Carter. He cuts to the heart on some of these. Have you spent more time today thinking about the president or another politician than you have thinking about the creator of the universe? Again, I think that's something that we should ask ourselves. I shared this article this week on our uh, church Facebook page. Have you spent more time listening to talk of politics on social media, talk radio, cable news, and so on, than you spent in the word of God or with gospel-oriented media? Again, that's a significant question. What, what well are we drinking from? Again, I'm not saying we should pay no attention. I follow the news very closely. But with cable, with smartphones, it can be so easy to totally immerse yourself in the news. And for the person who does that, of course there's going to be this temptation to think that politics are the most important thing in life. A couple more questions. Have I become more obsessed with achieving a specific political outcome than I am about leading people to Christ? I'm off on one. There we go. Again, important to ask ourselves. Have more of my conversations today been about politics than about the gospel? I'll end with one more that he says. Do my concerns about possible political outcomes show that I, am, I may not truly trust that God is sovereign over the nations? Again, I think it's good to ask ourselves these things, especially for people who really follow this stuff closely. Because you can get sucked in. Politics can be a vacuum. Again, the point isn't that it's unimportant. But it should not drive our lives. And I think those are great questions from the Gospel Coalition to consider. Because whatever happens in the coming weeks, God is still on his throne. And he is not up for election. Whatever happens in the coming months... In politics, in society, with COVID, with our health, with our jobs, our families, with everything, this psalm is here for you too. Because God is our refuge and strength who invites us to be still and know that he is God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, may we... Worship you above all things and rejoice that you are the king. Lord, you are sovereign over all time and creation. And for that, you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.